good evening, church. That was good. I got a good response then. That's cool. Um, I'm a father, as most of you probably know. For those who don't, yeah. I have a little daughter who's six months old, just over there. Her name's Noah. And she is the cutest, maybe I'm biased, but she's the cutest, the cheekiest little girl. I just love her to bits. Now, I'm a very new father, obviously six-month-old. So probably your veteran parents out there have already discovered what I'm going to talk about at the beginning here. Um, and probably those who are yet to be parents will discover this a lot quicker than I did. But the truth is, I did not really understand grace, God's grace, until, well, the grace of our Heavenly Father, until I was a father myself. And I don't know if we can fully understand what it means to be God's children and to receive His unmerited favour, His grace, until we're a parent ourselves. Until you have a child who is so utterly dependent, who takes all of you, all your time, all your energy, and you have to make this conscious sacrifice to give up your own self to care for this little darling, you'll not fully understand God's grace. Now, I love my little girl, don't, don't get me wrong here, but I can tell you, I've not had a decent sleep since he's been born. <laughs> I can imagine most parents out here say, I've got another 18 years before I can sleep again, or, or longer. But I've got a couple of stories that really illustrate this. So for the first three or four months, our little girl was sleeping in a little, uh, a little bassinet, a little Moses basket on one side of the bed. And during the night, she'd wake up every hour or so, and we'd have to pick her up, and the only way she would settle was on your chest, and you'd have to rock her to sleep or walk up and down, finally put her down, and it'd take, you know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe three or four attempts to actually get her down for her to actually stay asleep. And then sometimes five minutes, she'd wake up again, sometimes half an hour, sometimes you get a good hour. But there's one particular night I remember walking around and she'd been stirring a lot during the night. I picked up this one time and I was so, so tired, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to recline in bed. I won't sleep. I'll just recline in bed with her on my chest for five minutes. She'll sleep and I can put her down. A lot easier than sort of walking around trying to rock her and stuff. So I did that. So I reclined in bed and I had my leg hanging out, so my left leg hanging outside of the bed. I was only going to be there five minutes, so it's fine. And... Of course, you know, I, I stirred again and, and she was asleep and I was like, oh, great, she's asleep, I can put her down. So I've gone to get her to bed and as I put pressure on this foot, I've just collapsed to the ground. I had to go a bit further before this. So my beautiful wife, I've got to be careful what I say here. She's, she's here, I might be sleeping on the couch. But you know how mothers have this, <laughs> you know how mothers have, they say, have this innate ability when they become mother, they hear their babies cry and they just wake up. That doesn't happen for Liz. She's a deep sleeper. So when she, when she um, is asleep and the baby stirs or whatever, she's asleep. She's out. But me, I wake up to anything. A little bit of noise and I'm awake and I'm, I'm up. So a lot of times I was getting up and, and looking after Noah. So this particular time when I collapsed to the ground and went bang. That woke up Liz, of course. <laughs> and she goes, are you okay? And I was, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I didn't know what's going on a bit. You know, I've only been in bed for five minutes. What's going on? I'll be right. Try to stand up again, put pressure on that foot. Down I go again. And of course, she goes, are you sure you're all right? I was like, no, I'm, I'm not good now. So anyway, she took, she took her and put her back down. And, and after half an hour, I was good to go. I've got another story. This is probably like a hashtag bad dad story or something. But 
We're all friends here, so that's fine. There was another similar night where she's stirring a lot, that sort of thing. So I've gone to pick her up. And you know with a newborn, you sort of put one hand under the bottom and one under their head under their neck to sort of support them. So I've done that. And she was on the, the bassinet on the floor. I've gone to pick her up. And she was a bit wriggly at this stage. I think three and a half months, whatever she was. She did this weird sort of arch of the back and twist of the neck and everything. So the hand that I had under her head just sort of gave way. And she's halfway up. This is the middle of the night, three in the morning or something. And so I've panicked in that, that moment and gone to sort of catch her. And I've picked her up with the, from the bottom side, my hand. So she's up, head, legs in the air, like I shouldn't do proper. And I don't even know how I did this in the middle of the night. I ended up flipping her right round. So she did a full flip and back onto my chest. She was fine. And, and I feel pretty impressed, actually. But it's in these moments, as funny as they are, that you've got to have grace for my little girl. I've got to have grace for her. I'm so tired in these moments. Because being a parent is costly. It's a costly exercise. It requires this sort of self-denial. It is a joy, don't get me wrong. It is very rewarding, but it is also costly, and I'm sure the parents would agree. But it's much like being a disciple of Christ. It is both costly, but the joy is so rewarding. To be a disciple requires me to, to carry my cross daily and to follow him. So I have two questions this evening that kind of amount to the same thing. The first one is, are you a disciple of Christ? And, and don't be too hasty in answering. But if you did say yes, are you practicing discipleship? So let's look at the passage here. So we're going to look at Luke 14, 25 to 35. I'm going to start at verse 25. It says, Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish, everyone will see it and ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king goes to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So in the previous verses, the previous sections, Jesus just told a parable about this great banquet, explaining God's free invitation of the gospel. He's provided everything. He's paid the price and now he invites sinners to this great dinner. There's nothing you can do or say or bring to, to get this invitation. It's unmerited grace. It's all provided by God. But now it seems like the opposite side of the coin. To truly follow Jesus, we must consider putting him first above everything. So salvation is both absolutely free, but it costs everything. When you receive Jesus, when you become a Christian... You receive salvation, eternal life, 
at no expense to you. It doesn't cost you anything. But when you do, you give up all that you have and all that you are to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. But it kind of doesn't really make sense with our educated mathematical brain, one plus one, one equals two, because how can it be free and cost us? It's like a contradictory statement, isn't it? If it costs something, then it must not be free. But it is free. It's 100% free because Jesus paid the price. Let me try and sort of illustrate. So I have a mate. He's just finishing his commercial pilot's license. He lives on the Gold Coast, and he's been saying for a while, when he finishes, he's going to fly up to Gladstone and visit us, if he can. But suppose when he gets here, he says, come on, I'll take you for a joyride. We'll go for a fly. Um, no cost to you. I'll, I'll do the fuel and everything. and No, it won't cost you anything. If I go for that joyride, at the moment I've committed to that, haven't I committed my very life to him? Because if we go up, and say so we'd go around Larkham and Curtis Island, Boyne Island, come back and land, and everything's good, everything's good. But if we go up and something goes horribly wrong, we crash, that's our lives gone, isn't it? Yeah. Everything. Or suppose I commit to the Tour de Chaplain next year. I haven't, just suppose I did. <laughs> Even though I don't have a bike or riding gear or any skill or have ridden a bike in like five years. <laughs> but just suppose I did and someone offered to get me a bike and gear and to train with me and to actually ride the 100Ks with me. It's free to me, isn't it? But then it's cost me months of training and preparation and to actually riding 100 kilometres. It's free, but it costs. Or let's think a, a last sort of story. Think about our missionaries. As a church, we stood up and said, we're going to take up an offering. We're going to um, provide for them financially. So it doesn't cost them anything. But the reality is it costs them everything as they pack up their lives here in Gladstone and move to wherever it is, overseas, and commit to doing God's work for however long, their, their foreseeable future. It's free, but it's very costly. So Jesus Christ offers us the water of life. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But once we drink this cup, it costs us everything. You're no longer your own. You're bought with a price. So in this passage this evening, Jesus is addressing this large crowd. And they've been following him for some time. And he sort of gives this warning to them and to us, really, about the requirements of following him. There's sort of three sections here, and we're going to sort of look at them in part. The first one is about being a disciple. It's not something that should be taken lightly or done on a whim. Then he goes to these two parables that sort of stress that point. And then he illustrates the cost of not following him with this warning at the end, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I mean, when we hear that warning straight away, we should go, hang on, what's going on? We must then consider the cost when asking whether we are truly disciples of Jesus. Let's first look at these parables. There's two, there's two parables, and Jesus gives two examples that effectively spell out the same thing. One of a man building a tower, the other of a king going to war. In both examples, he poses that these men first consider the commitment they're about to make. He uses this very similar phrase for the tower builder, he says, when you sit down and calculate the cost. 
Of course he would, otherwise he'd start building, get halfway or whatever, and then not be able to finish. It's like us here with the building, we want to do these extensions and everything, but the pastors and the board and whoever else is involved needs to meet together and make sure that we can do it, that it's feasible, that we can afford it. Otherwise we put down a slab, knock down a wall, and then we can't finish it, and then we just got a breeze here. <laughs> and everyone would look at us and go, these fools. In the same way of the king, when he first sit down and consider the possibility of winning the battle. Otherwise, he'd be more than a fool, wouldn't he? he? Many men would lose their lives, he'd lose their homeland, he'd probably lose his own life. If he's wise, if he thought he couldn't win, he would go and make peace with the other king. But these two parables speak of this careful, rational, well-thought-out consideration of what they're committing to. It's not spontaneous, it's not something just to be done at the spur of the moment, not considering the consequence. So Jesus says in the same way, if you're not prepared to give up everything to follow him, you cannot be his disciple. And now for me, there's, there's little more exciting than seeing people come down to the altar and, and pray that sinner's prayer, you know, at those big events or at a church service. And I always really pray at that moment that it would be real for those people. But I read this statistic just recently that only about 10% actually follow through. They come down, they make that, that statement, but then it's too much for them, whatever it is. Because in that time, it's, it feels exciting. Emotions run high. The, the pastor said a good word. It was encouraging, something. They come down and, and do this. But rarely do they spend the time to consider the cost, what they're actually committing to. And that's what Jesus is saying, we must first consider this cost. Because we can fake it, can't we? And Jesus is addressing this large crowd. They didn't fool him, because he's God, obviously. He knew most of them were not following wholeheartedly. They followed him for their own selfish reasons. Some thought they might get healed or fed, or maybe they just got caught up in the excitement. There's this grand teacher going around, everyone's following him. But the reason Jesus lays out these commands is because he knew their hearts and wanted to weed out the superficial followers from his true disciples. I have this phrase I call MasterCard theology. It's not a real one. If you read, read any textbook, you won't find it. But you remember those old MasterCard ads where, you know, the person buys a few items and it's like $5, cup of coffee, um, $60, a bunch of flowers, surprising friend on their birthday, priceless. Everything else there's MasterCard. Yeah. Effective ad, and I still remember it. But these people kind of use God like a credit card. They're sort of living out their lives. They've got these things. For everything else, there's God. They're just living out their lives for themselves, but trying to get some of the benefits of God, like on the side with a splurge of the credit card. I'm living out my own thing, but I want a little bit of that. Yeah, so I'll just put on the credit card, just a little bit on the credit card. So at this point, we must understand two things. It's possible to accept Jesus on a whim without considering the cost. We saw in those parables. And it's equally possible to follow him superficially for our own reason, for no reason. And what Jesus is saying is that none of these people can be considered his disciple. Yeah. But I just want to clarify another point here. Being a disciple of Christ is not a second stage of Christianity. It's not like you get converted and then after a bit of time you become a disciple. But being a disciple is the definition of being a Christian. It's a person who's converted to Christ but includes the whole the whole, um, the whole thing of 
conversion, baptism, coming to church, growing, leading, teaching. It's a process that lasts an entire lifetime. So I want to ask you again, and I'm, going to, and I'm asking myself this, even as I prepared it. Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Have you taken the time to consider the cost? Let's just look for a moment. What is the cost? Because it's huge. Jesus actually says in verse 26, we must hate our families and even ourselves. Let me read that. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I'm sure you're going, whoa, hang on. Because I did when I first read this. Isn't Jesus all about love? Isn't Christianity about grace and peace and all these good things? That can't be right. That must be a typo. Maybe the translator's got that wrong. Jesus saying hate? But if you aren't shocked at this statement, you should be. Even imagine the crowds following Jesus at the time. You know, they hear this great teacher and he's doing all these great things. Even if they're there for selfish reasons, this still would have hit them where it hurts. This would have hit their heart. And I think Jesus intended this statement to shock so they may actually stop and consider what he's saying. Stop and consider what it actually takes to follow him. Because our decision for Jesus, our love for him, must be so great that by comparison, all our other relationships, even our own life, must seem like hatred. As followers of Jesus, we must be truly prepared to put him first above everything in our lives as the most important thing. Because being a disciple, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is a complete rearrangement of our priorities. Let me just clarify another point. Jesus is not saying that we can't love God and our family at the same time. I mean, if you read Ephesians, it clearly states that, you know, that the love between husband and wife is something of great virtue compared to Christ and the church. But while husbands are to love their wives, they're to love the Saviour more. And no bond should be more intimate or more inseparable than between disciple and master or between Jesus and his followers. It's hard to imagine that sort of commitment, isn't it? Because it cuts to the heart. It's like, boom, there. And sometimes I think we've got it too, hard, uh, too easy in Australia. Because even as I prepared this, I was like, well, am I really that dedicated? You know, that gun to the head moment, would I really stand for Jesus or, or the gun to the head of my family? And let's look at some real examples from Jesus' time. When Jesus calls his first disciples in Luke 5, it records both Simon Peter and Levi's response. They left everything and followed him. Right there on the spot, they dropped everything to follow him. And often when we read that, we kind of think, oh yeah, Simon Peter had his boat and the nets, so he left them there. Levi had his tax collector booth, so he left that behind. Maybe they had some possessions on them, they left. We've got to also remember that this includes their families, their homes, their careers, their livelihood. These are the sort of people that follow Jesus to the bitter end. And we must be willing to carry our cross daily. It doesn't mean to be a little bit irritated or uncomfortable because the cross is an implement of slow, painful, torturous death, isn't it? We must be willing to die daily to our flesh, to our desires, and willing to bear ridicule and shame for Jesus' name. But if we suffer, we suffer because Jesus suffered first. 
And if we suffer because of righteousness, because we're following Jesus, we do so with our souls entrusted to our faithful creator. So yes, being a disciple is costly, but it is also grace. It's costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because we follow Jesus. It costs us our whole lives, but it is grace because we gain true life in Jesus. I remember talking to a friend at work, telling me about Jesus and Christianity and some of my own testimony. And he loved the things I was saying. He liked the moral aspect of things and, and the church community and, and even some of what um, it meant to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. It, it, it was nice, he thought. But he said to me, and, and excuse the rudeness here, this was his word, he said, honestly, I can't give up partying, drugs and loose women. He saw the benefits of being a disciple, at least in part, and understood a little bit of the cost and decided it was too great for him. It really saddened me. If only he understood what was to gain from following Jesus. I mean, I still have hope and pray that he would eventually one day find Jesus. But it stresses the point, because Jesus' words in verse 33, they're tough. A disciple of Christ must be willing to give up everything. There's a great story. I didn't make, I didn't make it up of stealing this. I'll be forgiven, I hope. A man sees this pearl and says to the seller, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, it's very expensive. He says, well, how much is it? He goes, a lot. He goes, well, can I buy it? And he goes, of course you can. Anyone can. He said, well, I thought you said it was very expensive. He said, I did. He said, well, how much does it cost? He says, everything. He goes, okay. All right, I'll buy it. And the seller goes, well, what have you got? He goes, well, I've got about 10 grand in the bank. He goes, good, 10 grand. What else? He's like, well, nothing more. Oh, actually, no, I've got, I've got a bit of cash. There's about 100 bucks in my pocket. I'll take that too. What else do you have? He goes, well, nothing. He goes, oh, do you have a house? He goes, oh, yeah, I have a home I live in. I'll have that too. He goes, well, hang on, where am I supposed to live? In my camper? He goes, oh, you've got a camper. I'll have that too. He goes, well, hang on, I've got to sleep somewhere. I'm going to sleep in my car. But you've got a car. He goes, yes, I've got two of them. He goes, I'll have them too. And then he goes, well, hang on. Where am my family going to sleep? Well, you have a family. He goes, oh, yeah, I've got a wife and three kids. I'll have them too. And he goes, well, hang on. There's one thing else I forgot to mention. You yourself, I'll have you too. The seller says, everything is mine. Your wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. But he says, listen, don't fret. I'll allow you to use these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're all mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I'm the owner. It's a great story, isn't it? But it really shows the sort of attitude we need as disciples of Jesus. We must be willing to give up everything. We also need to remember that in giving up everything, we gain a possession greater than the world has to offer. Greater than the pearl in that story. But what does this all mean, being a disciple? Well, well, to finish off, I've got three things. I've got a challenge, an encouragement, and a reminder. The challenge sort of starts with this, looking at the cost of not following Jesus. Jesus gives one last example. He says in verse 34, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. It's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. If we claim to be a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, however you want to put it, but we go back on our commitment because we haven't considered the cost or we're only committed half-heartedly, we're like salt that's become tasteless. It's good for nothing. You wouldn't put it on your food at all. You throw it in the bin. So I'll ask again, are you truly walking as a disciple of Christ? I'm speaking to myself here because I have a beautiful family. I have a home. I have cars, a job, a life here. Just like the man in that story. But in my heart, I must be willing to give them up to Christ. It's something I have to wrestle with daily. That's why I pray for my daughter. We try and pray regularly or every night before she goes to bed. I thank, the, I thank God for, being, for the privilege of being her, hev- uh, sorry, her earthly father, knowing that ultimately she's God's possession. She's a child of God. I'm not her owner. He's entrusted me like a faithful steward to, to care for her, to bring her up, to, to teach her godly things. But he's the owner. So the challenge tonight is that you would make Jesus the Lord of your possessions, your plans, your thoughts, all that you do and all that you are, that you would choose to be a disciple in a radical way. Because being a Christian is radical. And it may mean giving up some things. I'm not, going, I'm not saying go and sell your house or anything like that. But what I am saying is to stop and consider those things. Seek God in prayer. And see if there's any things or any relationships or anything in your life that you put above Jesus. And make this radical realignment. Like when I flip my daughter. Now, our desire as disciples should be Christian maturity. We want to see all saved, all grow, all serve. So the second part of the challenge is that every Christian should be helping unbelievers become believers by showing them Christ. Every Christian should be helping believers grow in their faith. And every Christian should have someone that they look to for guidance that they may grow and serve themselves. This is not easy. These aren't easy words. I've got encouragement as well tonight. The encouragement is that Jesus is our strength. Because this is not an easy commitment to make. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to stuff up. Which is why we need to carry our cross daily. Every day we need to renew our dedication to Jesus. Knowing that he is our strength. We don't try and be perfect. We're not trying to be Jesus for people. The place is for Jesus alone. We just need to follow him and seek to grow in Christian maturity. He's already paid the price. It's all finished on the cross. But trusting Jesus is hard. It requires following the unseen into the unknown. It's not an easy task. And we may struggle with it daily, and I think we should struggle. But the good thing about the struggle is that we have Jesus to depend on. He gives us his strength. The last thing is just a reminder. And the reminder is that we have everything to gain by making this commitment. Because being a disciple is costly, but we have everything to gain. Discipleship is costly because it calls us to follow, but we follow Jesus. We give up our whole life, but we gain life in Jesus. Jesus paid the ultimate price 
the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, that we may have life and hope and meaning, purpose and peace. When Jesus speaks about his disciples, he says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And for those of you here tonight who have heard Jesus call and follow him, the grand reward is intimacy with God. His provision and protection that will never, 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 never end. Not in this life or in our future hope. He is always with us as a great possession, giving us eternal life. But for those of you who haven't committed to Jesus here tonight, my encouragement would be to make the first step. And I'm sure everyone who is a follower of Jesus here would agree, it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. Let's pray tonight. Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you came. We thank you that you gave up everything you had, all your glory in the heavens and came down as a man. We thank you that you lived the perfect life. And we thank you that you paid the ultimate sacrifice. You died in the place of us and, and lived the life that we could not. And we just want to hear that call tonight to follow you with all our heart, with everything we are, with all we have. And God, I just pray that you would just raise up disciples. And we just thank you that you are with us to the bitter end. I thank you that we have a future hope in you. I thank you that although being a disciple is costly, it is the best joy we'll ever have. Help us just to take heed to these words tonight and um, just follow you with all that we have. Just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Can we have the singers and musicians just for a moment? That'd be great, guys. <laughs> the great challenge, isn't it? The discipleship. The great challenge. We've been had a month on just speaking about it and talking about it. And I'm, it's really quite refreshing to think that... Uh, the reality of, of life. Do, do you know if, you, if I've discovered that if I never paid the cost to follow Jesus, I'll pay a cost to follow something else. I'll always pay a cost. Some people think, well, I'm not going to become a Christian. That's just too costly. But you know what? You, you're happy to pay the cost of all the other things you do in life that are ungodly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ah. Oh. Can we just stand? We're going to just sing this beautiful song one last time and just to weigh it up. Mm -hmm. Life and its beauty Stirring 